Hello and welcome to this, the first episode of the new season of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the first episode of what I'm calling season six of the show. Very excited to be back with a bunch of new episodes, some really great guests in this upcoming season. This is the show where I interview all kinds of people who are doing interesting and important things here in Northern Nevada. Try to include a little bit of everybody. I am really excited about a lot of our guests this season. A common theme in the conversations I have about Reno are that it seems to be constantly changing. And growth can be exciting. I'm definitely happy to know that Reno is a place that people want to come to. But it's often framed as there's this conflict between growth and historic preservation. A lot of conversations also tend to be about Reno's shared story, a you know, common understanding of what this place is about and what it should be. Today, I'm very excited to welcome, as the first guest of this season, historian and writer Alicia Barber. You might know her from her very popular Substack newsletter, The Barber Brief. Alicia writes regularly about historic preservation and development issues in the area, city council happenings, and uh, other topics of local importance. It's a great resource. I hope that you will check that out. That is thebarberbrief.substack.com. On this episode, Alicia and I discuss the earliest history of Reno as a railroad town and how Reno's changed and redefined itself over the generations to adapt to different economic conditions. We talked about what makes for a vibrant and active neighborhood and what inhibits that, how to tell a shared story about our history, where it has actually taken place, We talked about the history of the Lear Theater and some hopes for its future and a lot more. I've really been looking forward to this episode for a long time, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. If you have comments or suggestions for future guests, as always, my email is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And now this week's guest, Alicia Barber. (laughs) Alicia Barber, welcome to Renoites. I'm super excited to have you on the show. I've wanted you to be on the show for a long time. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting. So you are a, a historian, and I think a lot of people now know you from the Barber Brief, which is a Substack newsletter that you do that's uh, kind of a combination of journalism. I am always hesitant around the word journalist because I think of myself more of a podcaster and a, you know, a conversationalist than a journalist. But the Barber Brief talks a lot about what's going on currently in the city, it has this historical background because you're a historian. So can you start just by telling us a little bit about what the Barber Reef is, what you try to cover in it? What is the Barber Reef? Why do you do it? Sure. Well, I started writing the brief in January of 2021. I had been writing a blog before that just on my personal website and had been you know, commenting from time to time on events that were relevant to Reno development, particularly from the perspective of history and historic preservation, because that's something that I've been closely involved in here for 20 years now, really since I first arrived. But I wanted to try to help encourage more people to participate in the public processes regarding development in particular, Mm -hmm. um, and the built environment, which is really what my expertise is in and what my main interest is in. So I wanted to try to find a way to be able to reach a lot of people, to help encourage them to participate in local government with respect to development, to give some context um, behind decisions that were happening and actions that were being taken in order to kind of have more of an informed understanding Mm -hmm. uh, of what was occurring. And the intention really has been to not just help the general public, but to try to help inform the people who are the decision makers, you know, our elected officials and our city staff. Um, The time when I introduced it, you have to remember, is we were really in the middle of the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. at that point, the neighborhood advisory boards weren't even meeting, not even virtually. So there'd really been kind of a, a decline just, you know, practically speaking, in the amount of public participation that was happening. And so I think combined with A couple other things that have been happening over the past couple of years, Uh, there had been um, a lot of turnover in city government Mm -hmm. um, for a period of time. I think within a four-year period, we had three different city managers, you know, and a lot of other staff turnover. Um, So I knew that there was sort of a a lack, a little of institutional memory, and Mm. I'd been around writing about Reno development for so long that I thought, oh, I can kind of help provide some of this. There'd been a decline in local coverage mm-hmm. of government, just from cuts in newspapers and such, yeah. you know. So, um, so I, what I wanted to do was try to provide kind of informed 
um, opinions. It's it's definitely me. You know, I wanted to call it the Barber Brief because this isn't, you know, I'm, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a reporter. I'm not out there interviewing people. Mm-hmm. Um, all the sources that I'm using are public sources. And I wanted to try to find a place where I could um, embed links to mm-hmm. all of the different sources I was talking about, whether it's a YouTube video of a city council meeting or a document. So Substack was just something I landed on. You know, I didn't know a lot about it, but it's a very good platform that allows you to have subscribers that Mm -hmm. you can either do for free or paid. Mine's free. And then it also works as a website. So anybody can access it. I really liked that as a writer. Mm -hmm. I liked uh, being able to get to people directly who were, you know, by choice subscribing, wanted to hear this perspective, but that it also could be available for free to anyone. So it's now been over two years and uh, I don't have really a regular schedule. I kind of do it when I can, when Mm -hmm. I can, when I can fit it in, but it's, it's been great to see the feedback and I, and I hope it's really been helping inform people about a lot of these matters. Yeah. I think that, uh, I agree that there's this kind of lack of local knowledge and involvement in things sometimes. And that was the same kind of thinking when I started the podcast is we didn't have a long form interview show. I know there's some other podcasts that are more newsy. I know uh, like Sam Shad does Nevada Newsmakers, which is much more oriented towards politics and it's more traditional kind of like broadcast style TV. And that was the same kind of thinking was like people should know more about what's happening in their community, whatever that looks like. Do you think that most people want to actively participate and help the decision makers like you've been part of the neighborhood advisory board meetings and you're very familiar with kind of the citizen participation in government you know we can report on it but how do you get people to show up and voice their own opinions and participate it's a good question i mean i think a lot of people want to have their voices heard Um, they'd like to see their opinions represented they'd like to see their perspectives represented whether it's directly or by someone who is their representative but people don't have a lot of time Mm. you know they don't have a lot of time to devote to going to a city council meeting in person for instance um, or even maybe to read a lot of the context or to nowadays try to access all of the disparate media coverage and platforms where people are talking about these things. It's not like we all read the same newspaper anymore, you know, Um, and Reno used to have two daily newspapers. So people had just an abundance of information. It's harder now. So I think that, you know, people want to know what's happening and what they can do. And so part of the, you know, impetus for me too, was to try to make that easier to do. And the, the Substack form requires you to be succinct. It's actually sort of, it's one of the constraints that it's tough for me because I'm a long form writer for the most part. And uh, there's a limit to how long that email can be. And I get the Mm. little flashing light, you know, but what that tells me is that I need to be succinct and brief. And people have said like, you call this the brief. It's not brief. Sometimes (laughs) the emails get pretty long. I I was about to say for for a brief, it, uh, it's, there's a, they're long posts. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, to fit it in, you know, because there are a lot of things happening all the time. And so I, I try to be concise. And what I'm also doing is linking constantly to other media coverage, Mm. Uh, I'm not trying to duplicate that. I'm not a journalist. um, And I want to help people navigate through this process. So I think the easier you can make it for people to both learn about the issues, get an informed opinion, and then participate and feel their voices are heard, the better. Mm -hmm. And, And so that's always been, though, my question, even from, you know, historic preservation is, what is that mechanism? What's that mechanism that gets people from interest and concern to action? Mm. And I think we're still just trying to figure it out. So to me, this is just one experiment, you know, to see if I can help in this way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's been great. I think that people look for, look forward to it. Like whenever there's a post, I notice a lot of people share it on Facebook. It's like, hey, there's another like very substantive explanation of what's happening. And a lot of it is about what's happening in, in our city government. So your background is more in history but the brief is focused on kind of what's happening today. I know you wrote a book, uh, Reno's Big Gamble, that was kind of about Reno trying to redefine itself, to have a story of itself. So from the more kind of historical perspective, can you just talk a little bit about what Reno has been, like the different kind of eras in Reno and where we're at now? Because it seems like Reno, as long as I've been back since 2017, it has a little bit of an identity crisis thing. Like, is it trying to be a tech city? Is it trying to be an art city? Is it outdoor recreation in the mountains? So can you just talk a little bit about Reno's Big Gamble and then kind of between then and now, how you've seen Reno try to define itself? 
Sure. The The reason that I, I wrote that book, that book actually began as my dissertation. So I was getting my PhD in American Studies at UT Austin, University of Texas uh, at Austin. And American Studies is a very interdisciplinary field. What I love about it, and I, I got my, you know, my bachelor's is in English, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from Stanford, and then I got my master's in an English department that had an American Studies kind of bent a little bit at the University of Utah, and I, because I was a writer, and I was into literature, and, um, but what I got very interested in was this notion of place, Mm. and our relationship to place, and so getting into American studies allowed me to bring in how literature helps inform our sense of place, how history helps inform our sense of place, and how the built environment, what is around us, um, helps inform our sense of place, and media, and everything, so choosing Reno as the topic was specifically because I thought this is a place that has a very interesting relationship with its own identity. Mm-hmm. And looking back at its history over time, you could see how there's always been kind of this fraught relationship between the residents and how they have felt about the city and how outsiders have felt about mm-hmm. the city. And it comes up from the very founding year of 1868, where the uh, impression was that this was this wild frontier town, you know, out west. And people who lived here were trying to build a community. You know, they had churches and institutions and schools. And the more that Nevada and and Reno, which was Nevada's largest city for so long, mm-hmm. began trying to experiment with different economic ventures, whether it was the divorce capital, um, you know, migratory divorce, making it easier to get a quick divorce here, or gambling, you know, these were things that were thought of by outsiders often as signs of, you know, either sin or lasciviousness or, uh, you know, at least being unethical Mm. or something like that, you know. And so you always had a community, though, that was saying, no, wait a minute, you know, there's the economics and what we're pursuing here. But then there's the fact that this is a community just like any other community. Right. And so those, you know, different stages, as you say, kind of really started out as our our railroad junction in 1868. I mean, that's why we're here, you know, it's because of the Transcontinental Railroad, but as a support community for mining. That kind of goes bust in the Comstock in the 1880s or so. And there was a great identity crisis. What will we be now for the whole state? Why Mm -hmm. would anybody move here if there's no mining? So a lot of casting about um, to try to figure that out. And eventually, you know, some more mining in Tonopah and Goldfield. Unlike the Comstock era, the money and wealth and power coming from central Nevada's mining strikes came to Reno and mm. really helped establish Reno. That's why we had George Wingfield came up here, George Nixon, you know, we got the Nixon mansion up on California. So that gave some stability. Of course, we got the university mm-hmm. that came here in the 1880s after being established in the 1870s out in Elko. That helps become a cultural center. It became the county seat very early on in the 1870s. We got the courthouse, you mm-hmm. know, so it became the, the a government center. And then divorce kind of showed up as a, an economic possibility sort of inadvertently, but that's kind of the way the legislation kind of stacked up. Oh, suddenly became easy for people to come here and get divorces. Mm -hmm. That starts after the turn of the century. And then gambling in 1931. You have both of those kind of going together through about the 1960s, you know. So in every case, what my dissertation and then my book kind of traces, what did that do for what outsiders were saying versus what insiders were saying? And then how much were Reno's residents and power brokers shaping the city to accommodate what maybe outsiders wanted, tourism, right? Divorcees, you know, Mm. gamblers, as opposed to what residents would prefer or what they connected to. And that's been a constant tension. Yeah. Uh, Do you think that we're doing a a good job of managing that? Or have we done a good job of managing that? Or do you think that we sometimes tend to prioritize too much as far as tourism. I think that many places that I've lived complain about Californians moving there and this like kind of influx of outsiders. And this is like our community and we like it the way that it is kind of thing. Uh, But obviously as a tourism based economy gaming, there is the economic need to cater to people who are not from Reno. So do you think we do a good job of managing that? Do you think Reno has a strong internal community and like sense of belonging for the people who are here and have been from here a long time? 
I, I think residents who are here and people who very proudly talk about being third, fifth, you know, <laughs> generation uh, Nevadan have a strong, strong connection to this place. And I think even newer residents like me, I mean, I've been here 20 years. Um, I'm, I'm the first generation to be here. You know, I have, I have a second generation that I'm raising right now, but, um, you know, feel very connected to it for many reasons, but it's, it's a constant balance, I think. And the reason that it has been so intense here is that a lot of these changes have taken place in a very small area. Mm. Reno was a very small city, the biggest little city, but it was a very small city for a very long time and not even really what you would think of as a city. Mm. I mean, you have to remember that we only hit 50,000 people here in about 1960. Back in the 1930s, we had 18,000, 20,000 people, a really small town with mm-hmm. a very small, dense center. And so because the economic activity has all taken place in a pretty finite area, not just inside the McCarran Loop, but well inside the right. McCarran Loop, because we have kind of a dense city center and then a lot of suburban type development. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, the desirable areas for development have been the oldest parts of the city, have been the places that longtime residents have connected to the most because our traditional, we now think of this downtown entertainment district or casino core was our one downtown. Right. You know, it's where people banked and it's where they went to the dentist and it's where they went to JCPenney's right. and, uh, you know, in the post office and school and, and a lot of people lived. So when you start to transform that area in the scale that happened here, particularly starting in the 60s, but most of the 70s and 80s, where full city blocks, you know, we're going down to erect hotel casinos mm-hmm. and their parking garages, casino floors and their hotel towers. That's a massive transformation mm-hmm. through an area that really was the downtown, you know, uh, Las Vegas had its strip and a lot of development happened out there. Mm-hmm. And Reno didn't have that, you know, Re- there was, there were thoughts about it <laughs> at one point, which is really interesting to try to develop that along South Virginia street, but instead it pretty much happened downtown. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the struggle, I think. And I think in some ways it was what had really motivated me the more time I spent here to get involved in historic preservation, but through not just a desire to, oh, let's save these old buildings, but they they tell stories and they tell the stories of this community. Mm-hmm. I know I have sort of become identified as a historian, but coming from the perspective of American studies, what I really look at is place and our connection to it. And so that manifests through history sometimes, but I also am very interested in, in the built environment. I'm very interested in planning and how we're shaping things for the future. All these things kind of come together, you know, in the various types of projects I do, because in addition to the brief, I'm, I'm working on historical projects. Mm-hmm. That's my main professional mm-hmm. career. Yeah. In the uh, so in like the downtown entertainment core, it's a fairly unique thing. As you mentioned, like Vegas had the strip, which was separate kind of from what people thought of as downtown where people lived. And here in Reno, the entertainment core downtown, I think for most people has always been thought of as like that is the center of town. And you talk about placemaking and a sense of place, it seems like a kind of unique environment to try to create a sense of place. And the city has done these placemaking studies. There seems to be a focus. I had Brian McArdle, who's the revitalization manager on the show, and he talked about the same kind of thing as creating this this shared sense of place, the shared story of what we are. Can you talk a little bit more about what placemaking is? Like what makes a, a place desirable? What should cities like Reno be doing to create that sense of place if it doesn't exist already? I think that, you know, placemaking offers the opportunity to capitalize on what makes a specific location unique and try to strengthen people's connection to it through not just activities that you can produce there, although that's an important part of it, um, and also really tailoring that built environment to produce more activity, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a park that has a lot of things happening all the time, places to sit, things to do. Um, or activating your street fronts so you have more businesses with activity coming in and out on the ground floor. But it's also about strengthening the meaning of these places. You know, this when you have a sense of place, often we think about that connected to our childhood home or something. You know, mm-hmm. the trees are important. I, I played under that tree. I went to this school. The memories of your personal life are kind of embedded in how you will always feel about that place. Mm-hmm. And so it's often most natural to have that sense of place 
in a location where you have personally spent a great deal of time and have fond memories. In a place where you have a lot of newcomers and you don't necessarily have that personal memory of going to the dentist on Virginia Street, you know, mm-hmm. in 1955. <laughs> um, what you're trying to do is strengthen what we call public memory um, and collective memory. And the way that you do that is trying to, over time, you try to retain those connections to the stories that took place here, you know, in these buildings. And so you can do that a lot through physical means. One of the things that I do a lot are historical markers, historical interpretation, permanent historical installations that are outside or um, museum type exhibits or interpretive displays that are inside. I've got one in the basement of the post office, the downtown post office that I worked on. And we just try to put a bunch of visuals together that show you, here's what this building looked like, you know, when it was constructed in 1934. Here's the architect. Here's the drawings. Here's some postcards from that time. Out on East 4th Street through Prater Way, I worked on a project with the RTC where we have these historically themed bus shelters that have collages of historical photos. They light up at night. They look really neat. Mm. There's one by the side of the Johnson-Jeffries fight from 1910 that has all sorts of photos from that site. And so even if you weren't here, obviously, in 1910, neither was I. But the more I learn about that, I see this place differently and I can connect to it. So to me, there is a great deal of potential to bring people together who might not have anything else in common except being in this place now together. Mm. And through kind of strengthening the meaning of that place from its past role in our community, here's the architecture, here's what it looks like, and then creating ways for that public to engage in this space, we have further embedded that public memory and we have strengthened that connection of people, not just to the place, but to each other. And so to me, that's what placemaking can do. I think that there's enormous potential here to do a great deal more, I think, in a lot of those ways. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's just through architecture mm-hmm. and shaping a building and making sure that a building has that opportunity to create vitality through the way that it's designed. Uh, and sometimes it's through interpretation, you know, and display and information. And so I'm just trying to get a lot of this cool information out in basically every format I can think yeah. of. And that's kind of what's happened here for the last 20 years where it's been radio, you know, television, um, magazines, um, you know, exhibits, oral history, kind of you name it. Yeah. You know, I just feel like you throw enough out there. And I think that hopefully it starts to kind of, you know, pervade the culture a little bit. And people might think, oh, you know, maybe my personal impressions of downtown Reno aren't the only impression of downtown Reno. And we can capitalize on uh, an earlier time, Mm -hmm. on other people's connections, and try to keep this public memory alive. Yeah. Do you think the history is an important part of that? Because Reno changes so much, because we have a very transient population, people come and go. So is having that shared history kind of fundamental to that, where wherever you're from, however long you've been in Reno, the history is the same here, right? Like you're coming into a city that has its own history and story and whoever you are you share that with everyone already so is that part of the reason that you focus on the history you think the history is so valuable to the placemaking well absolutely and i think that in many ways reno is very unusual in that that isn't one of the first things that people think about perhaps when they think about downtown what really interested me in writing about reno in the first place was that i i started coming here in the 1990s i had family who came here And I walked around downtown and I thought, what is this place's story? Like, I didn't see any markers. I didn't see interpretation. I couldn't really understand it because it is such a fragmented space. You know, Mm. there isn't um, necessarily uh, a lot of really coherent historic commercial districts the way that there are in a lot of other places. I couldn't really figure it out. But you think about how other cities like Seattle, you know, or San Francisco or something, you can say like, oh, this is a port city, you know, here, here in Seattle, I can go down to Pioneer Square, and I can see where it all kind of began. Right. You know, I go to San Francisco, I can go to North Beach. Oh, this was, you know, all the sailors were here, you know, or Philadelphia, you know. Mm. Um, When you come to downtown Reno, how would you know that this is a railroad town? You know, how would you know that this was founded in 1868 with the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad across the country by Chinese workers working for the Central Pacific? Our railroad depot has had its historic section vacant now for a very long time. And there is not interpretation that links our three 
railroad buildings together. It's wonderful that we still have them, but one of them in particular, the freight house, is really in jeopardy. You know, the city gave it to the ballpark owners years ago. It's been vacant pretty much ever since, and I've heard that they, you know, they may intend to demolish it. You know, I'm very concerned about that. We have three buildings in a row that explain why Reno's here, and other cities have done remarkable things with their railroad buildings, with their railroad depot. If you did that, if you brought that up in a, you know, in a renovated way, put some sparkling fun stuff in there, interpreted it around, you know, people would understand, ah, this doesn't just tell us about these buildings. It doesn't just tell us like back in 1868, we were a railroad town. It explains so much. You know, we have Commercial Row that is right alongside the railroad line, which is now lowered, because that's where all the commerce was. You know, mm-hmm. the commerce faced the railroad because people would get off the railroad and that's that was the best place to have your business. Mm-hmm. So names have meaning. Um, locations have meaning. We can revive that sense of what commercial row was in the heart of our city. There's imagery that can help us, you know, learn more about that. But there's also a very traditional way of building where the built environment had smaller blocks, you know, with smaller buildings, multiple entrances, a variety of types of buildings together. Mm-hmm. If you look at Commercial Row now, which is on the Harris block facing basically the Whitney Peak parking garage, there's a whole bunch of empty space. It's kind of like surface parking lot, sort of. You could reconstruct, I'm not saying looking like historic buildings, but the whole notion of a whole bunch of little businesses, you know, facing Commercial Row, and that would bring so much vitality. So history can tell us the stories, for sure. They can explain what's in front of us. They can explain names. They can explain, you know, what's this building doing here? But it also can give us the keys to redevelopment and revitalization here and kind of turn back the clock a little bit against this moment when not just the casinos were creating full blocks with very few entrances dedicated to one um, activity, but the city did that too. We did it with the Reno Events Center. We did it with the National Bowling Stadium. Mm. We did it with the downtown Reno Ballroom. You know, these are buildings that aren't utilized the vast majority of the time and don't have anything that's active all the time on the ground floor. Mm-hmm. So history can teach us a lot about how to try to reclaim that vitality. Yeah, I think that that, that multiple uses of spaces is something that I understand to be essential for a, a vibrant community. You want people for different reasons at different times of the day right. in the neighborhoods, and that makes them feel more lively. It makes them feel safer. Mm-hmm. And I do think this kind of full block development in Reno is a real stumbling block to that being a thing. But we have spaces downtown. Like you mentioned, there are spaces that are surface parking lots. There is the ability to do redevelopment. What does the redevelopment look like that can maintain that history too? Because sometimes those things seem to be in conflict with each other, where it's like, oh, we want to redevelop and bring more activity and liveliness. But the cost of that sometimes is it's historic buildings, it's historic places that physically end up being removed. And I think Nevada, I lived in Vegas for nine years. That's the story of Vegas, like a, you know, casino is 30 years old. So they blow it up and build another giant casino. Uh, So I think in Nevada, we're just very comfortable with tearing stuff down. How do you think we can balance those things as far as maintaining some of the actual like physical historic infrastructure and still activate it and make it something new? Like, how do you merge those things? Or, or are they inherently in conflict with each other? Uh, they're not in conflict with each other. And I think that's, it's unfortunate that sometimes it gets pitted this way, you know, um, development versus preservation, mm-hmm. right? Revitalization versus preservation. Yeah, the future versus the past. Uh, you look at cities across the country and the world, you know, and it just doesn't even make any sense to to pit those things against each other because people understand the value for so many reasons of of using historic buildings, you know, if you if you can, I mean, from pure point of sustainability, for one thing, but there are also are so many ways in which historic buildings help promote economic activity in a way that a new building just can't. And I think Midtown's a perfect example, mm-hmm. 2007, 2008, when a lot of entrepreneurs and independent business owners were really starting to focus on Midtown. It was because it was affordable, you know, it's because these were old buildings that had cheaper rents. I know mm-hmm. things have kind of changed, you know, <laughs> over time, but there wasn't a lot of overhead. People could charge less. Sometimes they could purchase the buildings themselves. You know, Jane Jacobs has this um, great line that like new ideas need old buildings. Mm. Um, just for that reason, this is why artists have always moved into old warehouses. And, you know, 
um, because they can be affordable in that way. But they also are appealing. They have a charm. They have just a certain cool sort of sense that you're exposed brick and, um, you know, your little smaller scale that's more pedestrian friendly. I mean, that couldn't have happened if every building there was new and it can't happen. It won't continue to happen if those buildings get torn down and replaced by things that are new. So you have to be able to recognize the potential in certain buildings for what you're trying to do. And not all, you know, development ideas can take place in the buildings that exist on a site. I know, Mm -hmm. but I think that too often what we see here is what I call premature demolition, where often an entity, whether it's a developer or a university, will just raise buildings and get rid of them just to try to get rid of the problem Mm. long before they intend to build anything there. And that's one of the things that I think we really have to, as a city, say it's not acceptable to do this because plans change, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that developer might go out of town, you know, the, the university might change their plans or at the very least to give people enough time to try to figure out what they might be able to do with that building. So I think there is a lot of potential in historic buildings that sometimes people are too quick to dismiss. Mm -hmm. We can have some tunnel vision, I think a little bit, I say we, because a lot of people can, you know, we all kind of have our own perspectives. So that's where I think education is so important. And that's where my my background as an educator kind of kicks in. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I came here to to work at the university, you know, just for a postdoc 20 years ago. It was supposed to be a one to three year gig. And uh, here I am 20 years later. But um, I taught for 10 years uh, there. I taught for many years while I was still in graduate school. I still feel like what I'm doing is, is teaching, um, is trying to educate. You can't care about something unless you know about it. Mm. And so a lot of the efforts that I've been doing, just to your point um, about development and is that diametrically opposed to, you know, to preservation or or history in some way, I've really tried to put a lot of information out there to help people see the potential and see the stories, the potential in buildings and what they represent. We founded Reno Historical, the website and smartphone app. It's renohistorical.org. And then it's an app that you can download for your phones. When I was still at the university, or I guess I just left, but in 2014, if people don't know about it, it's a map-based website and app. The same information is, is on both. It's organized a little differently that provides stories about historic sites, buildings, also sites, you know, buildings that are gone. We've got the MAPES, you know, we've got mm-hmm. Virginia Street Bridge, really as a tool to help people understand the background of these places. What? Why is it here? What does it mean? You know, what did it look like before it maybe got deteriorated a little bit? What could it look like again? Because really, any building can be preserved and restored with enough money. Mm-hmm. Um, so often, that sort of notion of you know, econo- does it pencil out or does it not? You know, that's often very much shaped by the priorities that someone might have. So you just want to try to open up the possibilities so there aren't any missed opportunities. And so people aren't so quick to dismiss the potential of what could be done with, you know, our historic built environment mm-hmm. and to see it as assets. And we're doing a lot, you know, the um, the Historical Resources Commission on which I served for many years, which is the city's advisory council on historic preservation citizen commission just got a grant to fund someone to do a survey, an architectural survey of all the different surveys that have happened downtown for various reasons. You know, when they do the retract, they do a survey. When they change a big road, sometimes they do a survey to try to, again, sort of help synthesize what has already been learned about our downtown landscape so we can then help the city other government agencies, you know, the citizenry developers alike kind of understand what what we have here, you know, and maybe not dismiss it quite so quickly. Yeah, I know a lot of the things you've talked about have been informing the public, informing the people about what the history was, the things like the the markers, the museum stuff, all of those for the general public. But you mentioned the Historical Resources Commission and a big part of this, and you mentioned earlier, is informing and working with the the real decision makers. Not that people can't have a say in how things go, but the people who are making those final decisions about how we grow and change. So you served on the Historical Resources Commission. Can you talk a little bit about how that intersects or overlaps with the city council, with the the planners of the city? How does that role in that commission actually interact or interface with the decisions that are being made? 
So like a lot of the other citizen commissions, whether it's Recreation and Parks Commission or Financial Advisory Board, the Historical Resources Commission is advisory to city council, and its purview is historic resources. It is in charge of the processes to govern the city's historic register. So when a building is listed on the city register, they would be the body that would review that, determine whether or not it should be added to the city register. And then once a building is on the city register, if anybody wants to make a change, if the property owner wants to change something about its exterior, they would go in front of the commission with a proposal. This is what we want to do, change out this window, add a fire Mm. escape. And they would give their advice and review it to make sure that what they're doing isn't altering the historical significance. And Mm -hmm. so there are always architects, engineers, historians on that commission to help provide, you know, the input and the expertise that they would need to do that. And then they also are advising the city on matters related to history. So for instance, now, historic resources and historic preservation. So now I know they've been getting uh, updates on the Lear Theater, the first Church of Christ Scientist building, Mm -hmm. which has undergone a little bit of maintenance and are hoping to be kind of the hub of conversations about that, I think. As far as that line of, you know, impacting city council goes, often with these commissions, the mechanism for that is through the liaison to the city council, a city council member that would sit on these various commissions and is ostensibly kind of the go-between, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of going back and forth. Although members also can have their own relationship with city council, you know, but they try to represent things as a body. So in general, that commission, we were very involved. And when I first got here, we were trying to see if the original Virginia Street Bridge could be preserved, if there could be enough maintenance to it to really accommodate flood control. And so that was a very dominant discussion there. Mm -hmm. I know that even before that, the Mapes Hotel... That was a city-owned property by the time it was demolished. And so if there's a property that's city-owned, then the Historical Commission can have much more you know, involvement in that um, as opposed to a private property that really the city has no engagement with. So it's a really important place that is talking about interpretation. They have a new historic plaque kind of system where they've started to create historic plaques. One of the things I really was trying to spearhead when I was on that commission. And so that's really underway now. I'm working with them now as an outside contractor to put a number of historic plaques throughout Midtown, throughout the Midtown district. And that was something that was funded jointly by the city of Reno and the RTC as kind of one of the final aspects of their massive overhaul of Midtown a couple of years ago. So we're finishing that. So I go through the Historical Resource Commission now to get that language reviewed and approved because it's a city-funded project. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to preservation in general, you know, there's a lot of things that that commission um, can't do, you know, necessarily, you know, advocate for saving different buildings that aren't under the jurisdiction of the city. So that's where our grassroots community group, the Historic Reno Preservation Society, comes into play, you know, a community group that began in the 1990s, just like the Historic Resources Commission did. I mean, we were kind of late as a city for getting both any kind of historical commission for our city, 1990s, Mm. and then this grassroots group also, Historic Arena Preservation Society, you know, 1990s. So that's a lot later. That's decades later than a lot of other places, which kind of shows you a little bit how a lot of the power dynamics here weren't necessarily oriented mm-hmm. toward the past. You know, like you say, they were a little bit more toward the future. And the Reno Historical is now managed. It's administered by the Historic Reno Preservation Society. That's that's who I, I, I'm the editor of it, but oh. we're under their auspices now. Okay, got it. And you mentioned the Lear Theater. I know that's a big topic of conversation. I did talk to to Brian about that too. And he said that's something that's on his, his to-do list. It's on his radar in this new role. And it's been not used as long as I can remember. I don't know when it went out of use. Very long time. It just had a chain link fence around it. I think it still has the chain link fence. It does. Can you just talk a little bit about the history of the Lear Theater? I know Paul Revere Williams, the architect, uh, very important, especially to the black community in Reno. It was owned by Art Town, I think, for a very long time, but Mm -hmm. nothing done with it. And now it's returned to the hands of the city. So you're talking about what the city does have control over. Can you just talk a little bit about the Lear Theater and what you'd like to see from it and what you expect to see maybe? Sure. I mean, it is it is one of our most phenomenal architectural and cultural landmarks. It was constructed in 1939 as the First Church of Christ Scientist. The congregation wanted to expand, and so they did a search. They interviewed a number of architects, and they ended up selecting Paul Revere Williams, who was at that point already a very well-known and successful architect in Southern California. 
black architect, the first black architect to belong to the AIA, American Institute of Architects, and just an incredibly well-known architect of just an incredibly eclectic uh, range of architectural styles. The church is neoclassical. It's just that beautiful, the columns in the front, you know, it's just a beautiful, serene church, especially on on the riverfront here. And the connection really, I mean, I think he had already designed a house for a woman named Luella Garvey. Her house is on California Avenue. And she was involved in giving money to that congregation. And so she didn't just select him, but he definitely was, he had already done a little bit of work here already. And and another house too, the Herman Ranch house that's up in Rancho San Rafael uh, is another one that he, that he designed for this community. So it's been there since 1939 and it was just a part of the community and for that congregation until the 1990s. And then they decided they want to expand again. So that congregation built a new church a little further South a new edifice for themselves. And, you know, Moyalier had donated funds to try to turn it into a theater, which is something that it seems that it could be well suited for. You know, if you haven't been inside, and I know a lot of people haven't at this point, but uh, we have some pictures on Reno Historical so people can see inside. Um, But it's basically one large room. It's a big, large sanctuary. Mm. It has a floor that is not level because it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit raked and it has pews that go look down toward what was then kind of the altar. But under the auspices of Lear Theater Inc., before it went to Art Town, they had started to do a renovation to try to expand it into what could be a professional theater. That was the motivation at the time that perhaps was just a little too lofty for what could be achieved, really. It has a couple of rooms on the side. It has a basement that is a little bit low, but could be used for certain purposes. It's just an absolutely gorgeous building. That sanctuary has banks of windows on either side that just bathe it in natural light. There are some beautiful light fixtures, but they're not needed most of the time. But it is kind of half done at this point. And so Art Town had it for about 10 years and didn't really do that much. They opened it up a little bit for a couple of events, but you know, it, it has a lot of issues. It has a balcony that is not accessible ADA accessible. It has some bathrooms that aren't ADA accessible because these things weren't really thought about in 1939. (laughs) There had been various plans and ideas, you know, through the years. But in order to really retain that beautiful interior, there's not a great deal of modification that one would want to make to that to really respect the view of, of Williams himself. I was honored to be commissioned by the Nevada Museum of Art to do a lot of research and work and talks and an and article about his work in Northern Nevada, Williams' work in Northern Nevada for an exhibit they did of John Ireland's photographs of his Nevada work mm-hmm. last year. And so really, I was allowed to give me the opportunity to delve even more deeply into his work, uh, into his significance. And the interior is just a, a, a beautiful part of that building. So when people have talked about, oh, dividing it into offices or something, it's just been like, no, you know, <laughs> right. um, let's really look at this. It is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's on the State Historic Register, and it's also on our city's historic register. So like I said before, with the Historical Resources Commission, that puts it under their purview. So anything that is proposed for the exterior needs to be approved, and that includes landscape, approved by the Historical Resources Commission. Also, because it has received so much funding from the state, over time, there are covenants on that building. And so the State Historic Preservation Office also has to be closely involved with Mm -hmm. what happens there. So there are a lot of, you know, you could call them constraints, but really they are protections for that building for its exterior. And, you know, in in some ways, I think it's, it's interior also. You know, it's something where I think there could be sort of desires for what people would want it to become. But you have to really balance that with um, what that would require in terms of modifications to the building. It has some parking, but not a lot, Mm -hmm. right? But it is part of a very walkable urban area. So hopefully, you know, we always have this issue in in Reno where like we don't think anything has good parking unless you can park directly in front of the building. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like it doesn't have to be closed. Like Reno closed means Mm -hmm. I can park in front of the building. But, you know, (laughs) people can walk for a couple blocks. Um, so what I'd really like to see is not necessarily, you know, I don't necessarily have a vision for what it should be or what its function should be, but I want to see that community conversation, Mm. I think, because, you know, it is an important building to so many people in the community for so many different reasons. And I think we just want to make sure that decisions that are made are being made in public. They're being made transparently. So another thing that has happened actually is that, I think with this last round of funding, ARPA funds that the city decided to designate 
they did put some money, a little bucket of money to go toward the Lear, some of it for, I think, some landscaping purposes, but also for the commissioning of a historic structures report, which is a formal report that is done to assess the current condition of a building, what maintenance requirements it might have, specifically what ADA issues need to be addressed. It kind of gives you just a snapshot Mm. of what is the status of this building right now. And that hasn't been done for that building. I would say if it has, it's been quite some time. Okay. So does does that help to have the full picture so that the decision makers know what they're have in their hands? Yeah. I mean, you need to start from a point of knowledge. Mm. You need to understand not only what the status is, but, uh, you know, you can also put some numbers on what it would cost, you know, which I think people are always going to want to know, you know, how much will it cost to fix this building? But you need to also understand what elements are important to protect to preserve its historical integrity. And that's what a specific project like that can do. There was a report like that conducted for our railroad depot, you know, our main railroad depot there on Commercial Row about 10 years ago, I was still at the university. One of my students actually wrote the National Register nomination for that structure. And the idea was to try to not just assess its current state, but have some kind of feasibility was kind of part of it. Very quick kind of basic ideas for what it could be. So for that building, there's a whole unused room on the other side of the waiting room on the Lake Street side of the railroad depot, just to kind of switch gears for a moment, mm-hmm. that report kind of laid out, you know, with a couple of bathrooms here, this could be a restaurant, this could be a storefront, you know, mm. this could be whatever, a wine bar, you know, or, or whatever. Um, so it, it helps you kind of see certain possibilities within the parameters of this as a historical building. There was an idea at one point, actually, I think it was around 2011 or 2012, to turn that station into a heritage center and try to tell Reno's story in that very place where Reno's story began. Mm-hmm. Um, our railroad depot, that one's the fifth depot to stand at that site. It was built in 1926, but there's been a depot at that site since 1868. There are still some signs around town, some wayfinding signs that say heritage center, mm-hmm. that direction. And, that, and that's because that was the idea. It kind of went away in the recession a little, but I would love for that to come back and for us to look at that building and the Railway Express building, which is now the men's club, and the freight house, and interpret these as our railroad story, get them all revitalized together. So I think once you have a city-owned property, now that the Lear is in public hands, you know, we have a lot more say mm-hmm. as a public. And and I think there's a I feel very optimistic about it, but I think we need to make sure everything is done in a very transparent way. And I'd also like to see that same Um, approach being taken to the railroad depot, Mm. you know, over there on commercial row to try to finally revitalize that building. There's so much development happening now on the other side of it in the ballpark area. Now it seems like a natural time to really step up discussions about that building too. Yeah. Do you think that as the city changes, these things come into more focus as there's development around them, the more they're putting in large buildings where people are going to be living there. Do you think that we're seeing some of these opportunities come more into focus because of the development around them and because there's more attention in these areas. That's exactly why it's happening. And a really good example of that is East 4th Street. East 4th Street has some of our most historically significant buildings, many of them on the National Register. The Nevada, California, Oregon Depot, that's now the Depot, Brewery Mm. Distillery, the locomotive shops that are right next to it. We've got these beautiful hotels that are now the Jesse and the Louis Bass Corner building. This whole part of town was really ignored for a long time. And sometimes the best thing that can happen for historic preservation is that you're just ignored. You know, like (laughs) nobody wanted to develop there for a very long time. And so these buildings over there, like the, the depot building, the Alpine Glass building, you know, these could remain vacant for a decade or two decades And nobody came in and said, whoop, it's not being used. Let's just tear it down and build something new here Mm -hmm. because it wasn't seen as an area where a lot of people wanted to develop. You know, now people are very interested in East 4th Street, Mm -hmm. you know, and these historic buildings are seen as great assets and they have been purchased and they have been um, restored in many ways. We know the Morris Hotel, you know, Piper Strummel and her her gang are working on that one now, too, after they've worked on the Jesse. What's nice is that at this point, we've come to recognize the importance of those buildings. And so I don't feel that they're really as threatened by Mm. this new development attention being paid to them. But yes, I mean, and that's the same thing with Midtown, right? Um, That whole stretch of South Virginia street 
once 395 580 was constructed it wasn't the north south highway through town anymore Mm -hmm. it wasn't seen as a really desirable area for development it was kind of left alone that's why we have so many of these historic buildings there dating from the in some cases you know the 1910s 1920s especially 30s 40s 50s the small scales so because we do again just have this one downtown we're not a big city that has a bunch of different historic downtown commercial areas we have the one downtown so it becomes the focus of attention and so that does put a lot of buildings in jeopardy if they're seen as being in the way Mm. um we've seen that out on west fourth street you know with those motels that were along there and you know some other buildings that are around in the central core there are some buildings with great potential on virginia street that have been demolished fairly recently and and it's a shame because nothing was built in their place Mm -hmm. it's always that kind of struggle to make sure, I guess, that we aren't missing opportunities and that we aren't acting in haste and that people are getting a lot of information that is balanced, I think, about the potential of certain buildings and particularly, I think, their condition. Is part of that the difference between more local and smaller developers being able to do the work they want to do versus more out of town and bigger money developers who might not have as much of an investment in the community. Like you mentioned, Piper Stremel and the Jesse, you know, they have a connection to Reno. If we had more ability for smaller, more local developers, do you think you'd see more buildings save? Do you think there's a way to change the way that we do development that would have more of the type of brewery district development rather than the Jacobs development? Well, I think it's always a big mix all the time. And I don't know that it really is necessarily about the size of a developer or whether they're an insider or an outsider. I mean, you know, I just went to a talk by Jonathan Bulwer from Jacobs Entertainment just this past week, and they talk about history a lot, how important the history is to them. So I think that it's harder with infill, right? Because it depends on how you operate as a developer for very small sites versus developments that do require a large amount of land. I mean, you look at Park Lane Mall or Mm -hmm. Ranchera, you know, both of those sites are just acres and acres and acres that could be completely re-envisioned in the center of town. There aren't a lot of spaces that you could do that without knocking a lot of stuff down. And in those two cases, there wasn't a lot there that people wanted to save. There Mm -hmm. were a couple of houses in Ranchera that I kind of, you know, wish could have been saved. A couple of cute little houses there, but for the most part, you're talking about kind of open land in the middle of town, which you don't really come by very often. So yeah. that scale of development usually is greenfield development that happens like out of city limits and you're just kind of, you know, adding more on the outside of, of mm-hmm. the city. That's a different kind of scale than someone who is just purchasing one building or wants to develop a little complex, you know, off of Midtown. I think, you know, some of these that are, you know, off of alleys or kind of a, a further a street back a little ways where they might replace a couple of houses with something a little bit larger. It all just kind of has to do with intent. I think that there are ways of respecting the history while building something new. Reno doesn't tend to have a lot of really sizable buildings that are historic, but also large enough that they could produce a return on investment to create, put a bunch of condos in, you know, Mm -hmm. like you think of a lot of other cities that might have huge warehouses, you know, that are turned into condos, you know, or uh, big old department store buildings. Um, We're a smaller scale place. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you have to remember that during the period we might consider historic Reno was pretty small. So we weren't producing big, San Francisco style palatial hotels that now can be adaptively turned into a boutique hotel or something. We have a couple of those, Mm -hmm. you know, we just have a few, we have a handful, but I think that there's a constant evaluation that I hope can happen when someone is proposing a development that they would rather not have the buildings in place that are there now. And you kind of go through, I think, the whole evaluation where you first try to determine if something is historically significant because not all historic buildings are historically significant. I don't think any preservationist wants to save everything that's 50 years or older. So you do that kind of evaluation first. You get that information and you try to understand what's the meaning and significance of this particular building to the community. It doesn't have to have a national significance. You know, what is its condition? Then if it is deemed significant, you know, could it be part of this new development that you're talking about? If it couldn't, if it absolutely couldn't, 
is that something that we really want to try to fight to save? Or do we, you know, is is it movable? Is there Mm -hmm. something that can be moved? You know, you got to go through all these questions. But I think having that process, I think knowing, and and a lot in the Barber Brief, I talk a lot about process. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the public process is very important to me. So if you knew that there was sort of this evaluation process going through at every stage, that you could have some input. And even a private developer can ask, you know, Mm -hmm. can voluntarily ask for, what can you tell us about this building? Why do you think it's so significant? Having that conversation, I think, can produce much better outcomes. Because then, even if it turns out there's really no recourse, this building has to be demolished, you know that you've exhausted all the possibilities. And that people, whether they are from out of town or in town, you know, just because someone is in town doesn't mean they care about the history more, right? You don't know, right? Just to know that they are doing what they're doing from an informed perspective that has been respectful of this place. And the fact that although it may not have meaning to them, it may have meaning to others. I just feel like that's the right way to operate, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that's part of trying to get all this information just out there so it's unavoidable. (laughs) So people can't ever sort of plead ignorance. Oh, we had no idea Mm -hmm. that that was historic or meaningful. The goal is for that not to be an option. Gotcha. That makes sense. Just to go back real quick to the, to how you share these stories. So you're a writer mostly, but you've also done a lot of these oral histories. And I do want to give you a chance to talk about that part of your work, because it seems to be a a big focus for you. I'm curious why you think that's a good way to share history, why that's a good way to share stories. Can you just talk a little bit about oral history and that part of the work that you do? Sure. When I started to research Reno and even researching other places other than Reno um, in graduate school and, and beyond, I would land upon oral history interviews sometimes as a source and was just transfixed by how they could provide information and details and connections about places, about history that you just can't find anywhere else. You can find often things that are documented in newspapers about what happened, certain cases when something might come into a meeting or, you know, something happened to be covered. But you didn't know why, you know, or you didn't know who the people were, or why people make the choices that they make. And you certainly don't learn a lot about just how people live their lives. So oral history is just an incredible resource. When I came here in 2003, I had had some interactions with the University of Nevada oral history program, which was then an independent, it was in the liberal arts school at UNR, but it was kind of an independent entity. And then when the budget cuts hit in 2008, 2009, big time, they cut so many things at the university and they cut their state funding. So they came into the history department and I had the ability to become the director of the oral history program within the history department. And I did that for four years and it transformed my life. I think the the meaning that that program had to the community, it was founded in the mid sixties and they started to interview people in the mid 60s, who had lived here around the turn of the century, and even some in the late 1800s, just astounding. They got rid of some of those earliest audio tapes, which I just still am just so upset about because they, you know, tape was expensive, and they just like they transcribed it, and then they recorded over it. Ah, But they do have some of it. But they really by the 70s, they were pretty much saving everything. There is an extraordinary collection of oral histories that at that point, that was the only statewide oral history program until UNLV founded theirs in the 1990s. And so they covered the state It has incredible resources about, you know, civil rights, about our indigenous tribes speaking, you know, with members of these tribes. It has urban development of all kinds, ranching, mining, I mean, you name it. And so I started to do these kinds of interviews myself, too, as ways of trying to get more community perspectives, understand perspectives that were not documented anywhere else. And so started to do some oral history projects commissioned by RTC. Washoe for the Forestry Project, for the Midtown Project. I've been working with the Reno Sparks Indian Colony for many years. I helped them form their own oral history program so they can interview each other. And that's been going great. I'm working a lot with Our Story Inc. right now, who work on a lot of histories of underrepresented communities in our area to try to do the same thing. One of the big things that we really made sure we did before that 
program at UNR was was dismantled um, in 2013 or so was digitize everything and put it all online. So that's one thing I would want listeners to actually know is that you can find these oral histories, the transcripts on UNR's website and special collections, but also on archive.org. And it is just hundreds and hundreds of incredible interviews. So I love to do that because people explain a world to you that you would never access otherwise. Mm -hmm. And particularly underrepresented communities whose actions and activities and lives were often not documented in other more mainstream ways. It's just so important. And it just provides so much more meaning to places. So as much as I can, I'm trying to go through those audios, you know, create clips, throw them on Reno Historical or on some of the other projects that I've done. I did a, a radio show for a couple of years for KUNR called Time and Place, where I used excerpts, audio excerpts from that collection and other oral histories. I just created little two to three minute vignettes that would tell you something, but using the original voice mm. of a person who had, you know, firsthand experiences of what we're talking about. I really adored doing that. And it just became something that took too much time. I just, uh, then I wanted to do something else and I stopped doing that. But those are all archived on the KUNR website, which I love because they're often used by teachers for classes and you can just go and access those whenever you want. Awesome. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about the work that you do or Reno's current story, where we're going next? Anything that, that we didn't cover today? I guess I just encourage everyone to really seek out this information, I think. We've been trying to kind of put this information out all over the place. You know, if you come across something in the basement of the post office or on 4th Street or in the bus stations, we have some displays that we put up. Some of the websites are not just Reno Historical. There's a whole website that we did, thanks to the RTC and Nevada Humanities, about 4th Street, 4th Street Prater Way. It's fourthprater.onlinenevada.org, and it is a whole narrative of the Lincoln Highway, US 40, the development of that whole corridor with oral histories and a lot of links to Reno Historical. We also did another project all about Reno's divorce trade, and it's renodivorcehistory.org. That one was a project of special collections at UNR, and it has not just how this whole divorce industry worked, but a massive, massive library of digitized materials that illuminate, we actually call it illuminating Reno's divorce industry, because there's just so much mass media about it. This was something that Reno did not have to promote at all, because it was just fascinating to everyone. Mm -hmm. So articles, um, magazines, books, photographs, postcards, you know, everything and some oral histories for that. So that's another one that I'm always trying to remind people is there because I I refer to it all the time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I think that I I, I would encourage people to um, contact me if they have any history queries. I have a whole folder of history queries. I get questions about history all the time, mm-hmm. not just from people who write in the media. I work a lot with journalists and, and kind of help give them background on various things. But if you're ever curious about anything, let's try to figure it out, you know, and help create more meaning for whatever it is that you are interested in so we can really try to perpetuate the public memory of how fantastic and wonderful this community is that we live in. Excellent. And how can people find you? What's where's your Substack at and how can people reach out to contact you? My Substack is thebarberbrief.substack.com and I also have a historical consulting firm that is storiesinplace.com and I have a contact form on that where people could reach me if they like. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, you know, I love to talk about Reno, especially with people who love to talk about Reno. And it's really great to have you on the show, especially with the historical context, because a lot of what I talk about on the show is very much the now. It's where's Reno now? Where are we going? Some of it's the recent history of Reno, my memories of Reno growing up. But it's always interesting to look a little further back, which is something I don't do all the time. So thank you for coming on the show to add to my overall knowledge of Reno, because it's, uh, it's really valuable, especially with all of the types of conversations I have to, you know, add a little bit of that historical context in sometimes too, because I think it's easy for myself and others to forget. It's been such a pleasure, Connor. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Reno Whites. And special thanks, of course, to my guest, Alicia Barber. Really great to have Alicia on the show and talk about Reno's history, historic preservation. It is an episode that I've been looking forward to for a really long time, and I'm grateful that she took the time to come on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, help me spread the word. 
a project like this really relies on word of mouth. So share social media posts, post on Nextdoor about it. I don't know. Wherever you talk to people about what's happening in Reno, do me a favor and have them listen to the show. Send them a link. I really appreciate word of mouth is everything for a show like this. Thank you so much for my supporters on Patreon. I have a couple new folks on there. Tom, Judy, thank you so much for signing up to support the show financially. makes a huge difference. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can do so at patreon.com slash renoites. I'll be back with a new episode next week with Michael Thomas from Greater Nevada Credit Union and Sarah Rosenfeld from MMG Agriculture. This episode is all about the cannabis industry, cannabis banking, the difficulties of cannabis businesses to exist and function with basic financial services, how credit unions are different than banks in that regard, what it's like trying to deal with federal legislation in a state where cannabis is legal. Really interesting stuff. That will be next week. Have a good one. <laughs>